Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Frank L. My name is Frank. I'm a compulsive overeater. Also a grateful member of uh, Overeaters Anonymous. And uh, I want to thank Walter for asking me to share tonight. It's a uh, privilege for me and also it's very important for me to maintain an abstinence uh, to be able to share my experience, strength, and hope. And, and also congratulations to our newcomers. It's a uh, wonderful way of life. The 12-step program is a wonderful way of life. And uh, without it, uh, I would probably be dead, uh, or at least very miserable in many areas of my life. And I also want to uh, congratulate the chip takers. Uh, Abstinence is, uh, for me, over the years, I came into, uh, I I went to my first uh, OA meeting uh, in January of 1981, and while I have not been abstinent, uh, completely abstinent for 27 years, uh, and have had several relapses, on the other hand, working the 12 steps on food and the various aspects of food for me has been extremely important, because for me, uh, uh, compulsive overeating and the uh, deleterious effects are not just... uh, becoming overweight, but also certain kinds of foods act on me in a way that uh, can hurt me just as much. I would say probably uh, just from just my own personal perspective, when I get overweight, uh, it puts an extra strain on my uh, respiratory system and my, and my circulatory system, my heart and so forth and so on, and it makes uh, moving around uncomfortable and so forth and so on. But there's certain other uh, foods which I'll get into, namely uh, coffee and chocolate and sugar, that affect my brain in a certain way and kind of make me crazy. And uh, you'll understand that as you hear my story. So uh, my life basically fell apart when my baby brother was born. And uh, I was... I was two years old, and uh, my baby brother just turned 70, and I still haven't forgiven him for for ruining my life. And uh, to me, it's it's probably uh, been the biggest tragedy of my life, because uh, up until that time, I was the center of my mother's life. She... uh, She was uh, daily rubbing me all over with baby oil and crooning to me and and, uh, covering me with kisses. And then along came my baby brother, and uh, that all went away. You know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of humor in it, but in a sense there's a a lot of tragedy because uh, all of a sudden there was really no room for me in her life. And uh, I started sucking my thumb. My thumb was my first uh, substance. I just couldn't get enough of it. In fact, I was like a compulsive thumb sucker. Uh, I sucked my right thumb because I'm right-handed. And, uh, and then uh, when I got tired of that, you know, later on in the night, I'd switch to my left thumb. And uh, it was such a problem that my parents uh, actually had little cages built. 
First of all, they tried uh, thumb, which was this stuff that they would paint on my thumbs that when you stuck your thumb in your mouth, it like burned and almost took the skin off of your tongue. But I adjusted to that, you know. And, uh, and my dad, uh, like, had this mechanic at the uh, insurance company where he was uh, an executive who built these little cages, and they would strap these cages around my thumb. And I learned to enjoy not just the thumb, but the cages, too. So, so you can see I, uh, I have this tendency, if one is, uh, you know, like, good, you know, like if, if, if one is good, then, then more is better. And uh, I switched from my thumb to, uh, I, I think, like when I was around five years old was when I got into sugar, in particular uh, chocolate-covered cherries, because my mom was a chocoholic. And uh, I don't know, maybe it was to placate me and my brother, but she would buy each of us, if we were really good, and she wanted to keep us quiet, a box of Schraff's chocolate-covered cherries. I think there were like about 24 chocolate-covered cherries in each box. My brother, it would take him a whole week to eat his box. But for me, you know, it was gone in an hour. Because one of those chocolate-covered cherries just set up the craving, and then I was off, just popping them away until they were all gone. I got into spinning on the front yard to uh, get out of my, uh, you know, like, compulsive rage and fear and despair and guilt and shame and paranoia, which is uh, a lot of the reason why I overate, why food was a comfort for me to uh, soothe my feelings. Uh, I guess I was, uh, uh, would be considered today uh, like a, uh, an overactive or a, a hyperkinetic person. But in those days, they didn't know what I was. And... Uh, I got, I got into sex when I was 13 years old. Uh, I was just like basically uh, using anything I could to, uh, to soothe the feelings and to make myself feel like I belonged in this society. And I could eat as much as I wanted when I was young. My metabolism was so uh, over the top that I could eat and eat and eat and eat, and I never gained weight. I never gained weight, actually, until I was uh, 26 years old and I got married to my first wife. I could eat as much as I want, whatever I wanted. My first wife was basically a compulsive overeater, and the meals that she fixed were huge. And, my, and I'd been taught, you know, as a kid to eat, you know, everything that was on my plate. And so... There'd be these huge plates of food and like seven course meals three times a day, and I just ate and ate and ate, and that's when I uh, that's when I ballooned up to uh, 35 pounds more than I am now. For me, uh, I sort of measure my abstinence not only in how much I weigh, but also uh, you know what I'm eating uh, that would drive me nuts, like the coffee, the chocolate, or the sugar. So. Um, I would say in the uh, 27 years that uh, I've been working the steps on food, I've gained and lost that 35 pounds maybe uh, five times. And uh, what happens is is that uh, I will I will get down to 175, and I'll be happy at that weight, and uh, my life will be going well. And then something will trigger off, uh, like the first slip. 
and then it's, you know, what's the difference? Or, you know, like, screw it, I might as well, you know, or I think I can control this. I think, I think that, you know, I'm just going to gain five pounds and that'll be it, you know, and there won't be any more. And then uh, I'm on vacation, you know, and everybody, if I'm on a cruise, everybody, you know, eats a little bit more, you know, like uh, when they're on vacation or they're on the cruise. And then, uh, well, I'm only 10 pounds overweight. And then, you know, but when I get up to 210, what happens is I can hardly move. And uh, because of my age now, at the age of 72, with arthritis and so forth and so on, it's a real danger. So uh, I have more of a motivation today to not overeat than I than I did ever before. And then I just have to I just have to stop. And the main main way that I stop is I stop by working the 12 steps. When I came in, I came into uh, another 12-step program two years before uh, OA, and and OA uh, did not uh, have any other literature other than the big book. I came in up in Seattle, so that's what we used, and I just used the big book, and I just substituted the word alcohol for food. And, uh, and then also over time, uh, chocolate, sugar. I went to a meeting once in Seattle where a lady said that she could get just as high on a loaf of white bread as she could on uh, a bottle of white port wine. And uh, there's something about it for me, too. Uh, if I go to a restaurant where they bring out a basket of bread, it's very difficult for me to just eat one piece of bread. You know, it's just like all of a sudden I find myself stuffing myself. So uh, I guess in this uh, program, different people use different techniques. I... I do certain things that people would say you really shouldn't do. I weigh myself every night before I go to bed. I weigh myself every morning when I wake up. I notice over a period of a week, and my tendency is to really be good all week long, and then on the weekend, maybe I'm not as good. So consequently, you're taking a look at uh, Monday morning, I will weigh uh, two pounds more than I, I weigh at the end of the week. And... Uh, Take a look at that. I'm gaining and losing 100 pounds every year, you know. But I have to be conscious of that because uh, I, I need to use uh, my brain on this. I need to use my left brain, and I need to use uh, a cognitive approach to not, uh, not like, relapsing uh, as well as the 12-step approach. So... Uh, and I, and I remember what my bottom was. My bottom was I was working in a, a county detox uh, up in Seattle. And it was a county detox where uh, I was on a swing shift. And there were a lot of nurses. And uh, you're, working, you're working from 3 to 11. And, and every one of these nurses was bringing in food. At that time, my strategy was that uh, I was going to eat... Uh, because back in those days, hypoglycemia was a big thing. The idea was that you needed to stay away from certain foods that caused hypoglycemia. And hypoglycemia is where you eat the food and you get this big energy rush and, and, and so forth and so on. And then after about eight, uh, four to eight hours, you start to crash. And then you crash and you feel like you're hungover and everything like that. And then you feel terrible. 
and then you eat the food again, you know, the white flour, the sugar, and then you feel great again. So my strategy was, okay, I'm not going to eat a lot uh, at each one of my three meals a day. I'm going to eat several times a day small meals, like maybe six small meals as opposed to three big meals. And at this detox, the, the nurses were bringing in cake and candy and pie and ordering pizza and so forth and so on because they were all, in my estimation, compulsive overeaters. And one thing led to another. And, and if you've ever been in situations, it seems like every office I've ever worked in, every place I've ever worked in, uh, they're always having parties for some reason. Or there's always a birthday party. Somebody's getting married. There's a funeral. And they have a party. And they always have cake. They've always got cake. And they've always got uh, candy. And come on, Frank, what's wrong with you? And I'm sitting there. You know, I can't drink coffee. I can't eat candy. I can't eat cake. Have a piece of cake. You know, for God's sake, it's my birthday. What's wrong with you, you know? And I'm standing there with nothing, you know, like with a glass of water in my hand. And everybody's gobbling up this cake. So for me, it's like extremely important, like to be around people in general. I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult for me to be around people in general. You know, like booze and cigarettes and drugs is one thing. You don't find a lot of people saying, come on, Frank, shoot up here. You know, it's, it's my birthday, you know. So, uh, and, and, and food is also something that, you know, you've got to eat. You can't just quit completely. So, uh, so, that, so my bottom was, you know, and I, I rolled out a bit. Like, I tried to get up one morning after, like, well, what happened was, was that it turned into six big meals a day instead of three, instead of uh, six small meals a day. So it was, I was eating, like, six times a day, big, big time. And... Uh, I, I, I tried to get out of bed one morning and I couldn't I couldn't sit up and uh, I realized the only way that I could get out of bed was to roll over onto the floor and then get up on my hands and knees and then stand up and then I thought you know like I got to start going to Overeaters Anonymous and do something about this and over the years what has happened is that uh, it's become more and more important for me to work the steps on food. And uh, as I mentioned, it's not just stuffing myself. Because stuffing myself and waddling around is one thing. But when I, uh, and I, t- I think that, like my metabolism has changed now to the point whereby, uh, because I'm old, I can't hardly eat more, metabolize more than about uh, maybe 1,200 to 1,500 calories a day. You know, I can't eat even a normal number of calories. I really have to watch the food, the calories that, that is in the food that I eat, but uh, mainly it's the coffee and the sugar, because whereas at one point in my worst state, I had a job uh, up in Seattle where people were offering me coffee all the time. I was drinking, I counted one time, 27 cups of coffee a day, and then, because I think it's like a combination of caffeine and the sugar and the chocolate, Afterwards, I'd, I'd, I'd go to a meeting, and then, I, and then we would all go to this, uh, this ice cream parlor where I would have more coffee and a great big, huge chocolate sundae. And, uh, and then I would be so high, you know, walking on the way home that I would, uh, you know, I, I would hallucinate. 
I was I didn't have a car. I'd be walking back uh, in Seattle to my apartment, and every time I passed an alley, I would think that somebody was going to jump out and attack me. And so I, I would, like, in my own mind, I'd start to practice kung fu moves and things like that to protect myself. And uh, another time I was in a meeting in the morning, and, uh, and I was cup- drinking a cup of coffee, and, and all of a sudden... Uh, I started, my blood started to feel like it was boiling. And I, so I thought, you know, I've reached my bottom on coffee, and, uh, which I had several times. One time I gave up coffee for five years. Uh, I gave up, uh, I do sugar in categories because it's so depressing. You take a look at everything. There's sugar in everything. I mean, I, I took a look at a bottle of ketchup one time. There's sugar in ketchup. There's sugar in everything. So how are you going to give up, you know, like something like that completely? So I, uh, the deal was for me cookies, candy, cake, and pie. I gave up cookies, candy, cake, and pie and limited myself to one dish of vanilla ice cream once a week. Imagine the uh, tremendous, you know, like uh, willpower it takes to do something like that. And willpower alone is really not enough. Because even though I have these like different strategies for not overeating and not using certain foods, the main strategy has to be the 12 steps of uh, originally Alcoholics Anonymous. Because uh, my own brain will not keep me abstinent. Just knowledge alone is not sufficient. And also other phrases in that book. Uh, involve the fact that I have a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And that's what the steps do. The, the 12 steps maintain a uh, mental and emotional uh, and physical and spiritual, uh, I guess you would say, attitude in me that is necessary for me to uh, maintain abstinence. Certainly, as you can tell from my story, keep coming back is a really important part of it because, you know, if you didn't let me back in, if you didn't let me work the 12 steps on uh, on compulsive overeating and you said, well, Frank, you've had abstinence for certain periods of time, but then there have been times when you haven't been abstinent, so too bad you don't qualify anymore. Uh, we're not going to give you any chips. Uh, that would be bad, you know. That would be bad, certainly bad for me. But it's uh, it's a very forgiving uh, program, and to keep coming back is like extremely important. And uh, mainly, what I have to come back to is I have to come back to uh, working the steps. There are big arguments. You would say, well, what's mo- the most important thing? Uh, it's like, uh, is there a particular step that's more important than another step? Or um, are meetings more important than the steps? Or is the literature the most important thing? Or working with others? And I, I don't really, uh, I'm sort of like out of the debating society as far as that goes. Uh, it's all important to me. I go to several 12-step programs, and I go to 10 meetings a week. And uh, all in all, I've been, you know, like... Uh, Abstinent in certain other programs for a total of uh, 29 years, you know. And I have averaged sometimes two meetings a day. But mainly I've averaged 10 meetings a week for uh, 29 years. And uh, to me, it's all like the same. Whatever, whatever in my life 
is going to cause the negative consequences of whatever substance it is. And the negative consequences are in the very beginning, you think it's the cure. You, you think that, you know, I feel so, my, my self-esteem is so low, my, my self-worth is so low, what's the use? I might as well overeat, or I might as well, you know, like have 27 cups of coffee again, or I might as well, you know, like just eat a whole box of chocolate-covered cherries and start get pa- getting paranoid. And uh, another thing that coffee does for me is it makes me angry. And I drink, uh, like my wife can tell, when I'm on a coffee slip, boy, she can tell. She says, you've been drinking coffee, haven't you? You know, because my eyes start to look like pinwheels. And then I become very, very agitated. The strange thing was, when I was a kid, coffee calmed me down. That's the amazing thing. You know, they give um, uppers to hyperkinetic kids, like Ritalin is actually an upper but it calms you down, and that's the way that uh, caffeine worked for me when I was uh, young. It would uh, relax me. I used caffeine as a laxative. I uh, give me a cup of coffee, I would fall asleep. Then it switched. It switched over. So uh, I got off my. Uh, I got off balance by changes in my own metabolism. So. Uh, so, and, and, and by nature, I'm a person, because I grew up in a, in a dysfunctional family, uh, hooked on various kinds of substances, to where uh, I don't think, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been wondering all these years, working these steps and, and, and maintaining a certain amount of abstinence, when is my self-esteem going to get to the place of where I feel like I'm normal when I walk into a room with other people in it, or a party where everybody's eating cake and I'm not, you know? When am I going to uh, get over like this impulsive rage that happens to me uh, every once in a while? Or I wake up in the morning, as one person has said, the vultures on the bedpost. You know, like I'm, I wake up and I think, oh my God, I'm still alive. What's the use, you know? Or tremendous anxiety. I wake up, lately I've been waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Thank God for the 11th step because I, I, I know how to meditate. I'm really good at working the 11th step and meditating. So, uh, well, yesterday morning I woke up at 4. This morning I slept in until 5.30. But uh, like it was earlier this week, I was, I'll wake up at 3 o'clock and then I'll meditate for an hour and then I'll get up at 4 and start doing some work because I work at home at my computer and I can get a couple of hours of work done before I have breakfast. And uh, I just don't think it'll ever go away. I don't think that the uh, chronic guilt and shame and paranoia will ever go away. What happens is is that I have to moderate it, and I have to control it, and I have to uh, keep it keep it sort of like uh, medicated, but not with stuff that's going to make it worse. Not with uh, not with any kind of substance that is going to make the symptoms that I'm trying to heal or cure worse than than they are themselves. And so working the steps, what that does for me, working the 12 steps calms me down. And I have a list of spiritual principles. You know, for years and years I looked at the uh, 12 step, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to others, which is what we do when we go to an OA meeting or any other 12-step meeting. 
as we're here to carry the message to others. I always try to share at any meeting I go to. Uh, I'll raise my hand, uh, whether people, other people are raising their hands or not, because I feel obligated to share my little two minutes or one minute or three minutes or whatever it is. Uh, we'll uh, carry this message to uh, others and to uh, practice these principles in all our affairs. And, and like I wonder, well, what are these principles? None of the books really list them. I mean, you've got the 12 promises, you've got the 12 this, the 12 that, 12 steps. But what are the principles? And I came up with a list of them that I I tried to practice. And there are 15 of them. Gratitude, humility, honesty, purity, unselfishness, love, patience, tolerance, compassion, understanding, acceptance, and forgiveness. And by trying to practice these principles, which I believe that the first 11 steps enable me to do, then I get what I call the seven spiritual fruits. And the seven spiritual fruits are peace, joy, assurance, security, health, happiness, and prosperity. And, uh, and so, but when I don't practice the spiritual principles, then I get the opposite of all that stuff. You know, I get uh, impatience, intolerance, lack of compassion, lack of understanding. And, uh, and but the launching pad to get to those uh, spiritual principles and, and to that 12th step are the first 11. So every time, you know, I think I need a cup of coffee or every time I think I need more than one plate of food, or every time I think I need anything else to assuage what's going on with me mentally and emotionally, I just do all 11 steps right off the bat in my head. Step one, I admit I'm powerless over, you know, this cup of coffee right now, and my life will become unmanageable because I won't be able to stop with one cup. And I come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. And sanity for me means not having that first cup and come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity uh, and, and, and make the decision to turn my will and my life and that cup of coffee over to the care of a higher power right here, right now. See, uh, when I came in, they said, well, as far as the steps go, you just have to work the first, uh, work the first nine steps once. And then uh, after that, all you have to do is work steps 10, 11, and 12, which they call the maintenance steps. Well, I tried that. You know, the, the first couple of, I, I went through the first couple of years uh, just having worked the first nine steps, and then I was trying to stay abstinent on steps 10, 11, and 12, but it doesn't work for me because my brain forgets you know, I'm, I'm taking a personal inventory and I'm working step 11 and I'm working step 12, but my brain forgets how, how powerless I am over everything. Everything. You know, not just food, but my present wife, you know, and, and whether or not I'm going to find the work that I need to do to uh, boost up my savings account at this stage in time, what kind of a talk I'm going to give, and I'm uh, talking in front of people and so forth. I really am, for the most part, sure. My brain enables me to function in a certain level in certain ways, but ultimately because of my basic nature, which is fear-based and guilt-based and shame-based, for the most part I don't have the power that normal people have. So I have to have a, an extra power. 
And uh, I hate to call it God, although God is the simplest three-letter word to call it. But uh, this morning I was sharing at a meeting how forget about all the God stuff or the Bible or, or the traditional religion or all the rest, but I just think of it as being a, uh, a force for good in the universe. It's just, that's all it is. It's just, uh, and not even use the word higher. It's just an unseen energy. It's just, uh, I know it's there because I've accessed it from time to time. It doesn't, oh, it doesn't always respond. Sometimes I'm saying, help me, help me, help me, and doesn't seem like I'm able to plug into this higher power. But I know it's all around, you know, just like the invisible strong force and the weak force that holds the uh, atoms together and things like that, and electromagnetism and gravity. You can't see it, but it's there. And there's this other power, too, and it's there, too. And I can access it through the 11th step and also by working those first three steps. In a sense, that's what I'm doing with the first three steps. I'm plugging myself into the unseen energy. I'm powerless. If I drink that coffee or if I eat, you know, that dozen apple fritters, my second wife and I, we used to, just for fun, we'd go to the IHOP in West Miami where we live, and we would order one of these big breakfasts. This would be like about 11 o'clock at night. We ordered one of these big breakfasts, you know, with the pancakes and the strawberry syrup and the blueberry syrup and all that. And then next door was the Dunkin' Donuts, and we'd go in and order a dozen apple fritters, take them home, and eat them all, you know. And uh, we didn't know anything. I never heard of the 12 steps or anything like that. But that's how easy it would be for me. I mean, that's where my brain goes. Uh, one apple fritter is hardly enough, you know. So, uh, so and, and my life becomes quickly unmanageable, you know, uh, because of my powerlessness. And then I need steps two and three to really plug into this idea to remind myself on a moment-to-moment basis that there's a power greater than myself, you know, that's available. And four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine have to do with recognizing my part in it, turning it over through six and seven, making amends, usually living amends. I don't apologize to pretty much anybody anymore, even if I have a, a fight with my wife. You know, we've been together, we, we were both married twice before. We met in a 12-step program 24 years ago, and we've been together ever since. It's a true miracle. I work in the 12 steps, because uh, the 12 steps work not just on food, but also relationships and work and everything else. But... Uh, I do stuff that uh, ordinarily I, I would apologize for, but if, if I went around apologizing all day long, I'd never have time to even breathe. So what I do is I try to make living amends. You know, I just try not to do, I just try not to yell. You know, or I just try not to tailgate somebody who cut me off. You know, I just try to make the living amends rather than, than all of the apologies. So... Uh, and my part, usually, is quite intriguing. I was going to open it up for questions here. I've got ten more minutes. Uh, it's, it's quite intriguing what my part is, like, with respect to resentments. You know, somebody stomps on my toe, you know, and, and immediately I feel resentful towards that person. You would think, well, where's your part in that? You know, I mean, it's your toe, you know, because you had your toe in the wrong place, that's your part? 
No, no, my part in it is, is that I hold on to resentments like a bulldog holds on to bones. You know, if you step on my toe, God, you know, God is going to have to forgive you because I'll remember your face, you know. I won't chase you home anymore, but I'll remember. There's the person that stepped on my toe, you know. So that's usually my part as far as resentments go. As far as fear goes, I'm addicted to fear. So unless a grizzly bear is sitting on my chest, you know, if I walk into a room and all of a sudden I feel afraid because there's a whole bunch of people, what's my part in it? Well, I'm a fear-based person. And there's a prayer in the big book that deals with that. And the prayer on page 88 is, God, please remove my fear and direct me as to what you would have me be. So when I was sitting at that chair before I had to come up to this podium, I was saying that prayer. So, uh, so Frank won't be afraid standing up at the podium and then being going on the Internet in front of hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. What I did was I said, God, please remove my fear and my self-consciousness of speaking in public and direct me as to what you would have me be. And then a little energy in the, all around us said, it'll be okay, just calm down. And then the sex part, you know, which is the, for me, that's the way I work. The steps basically because it's not just sex, it's romance in general, you know. is where, where have we been selfish? Where have we hurt others? It's not bizarre sexual behavior, but it's where, where were you selfish and self-centered? Well, in order for me to survive, I just had to be selfish and self-centered all my life because I, I couldn't relax long enough to turn anything over to anybody else. It's just all it's just all got to be about me just in order to keep me alive and keep me breathing. Anyway, I've talked about the 12 steps, and they're extremely important to me. I use them all the time. And uh, in these last minutes, I'd like to open up for questions. And then if nobody has any questions, I could talk for hours. So uh, <laughs> this is for me, yes. Okay, the question is, uh, what do I do on a daily basis uh, to connect with this higher power? And it's the 11th step. And what I use are a certain number of set prayers, you know, like the Lord's Prayer and the 3rd Step Prayer and the 7th Step Prayer and the 11th Step Prayer. But also, uh, I use a form of meditation called Vipassana Meditation. Because you can do it anywhere. And uh, what I do is uh, uh, Vipassana meditation, also known as insight meditation, is where you focus on the air as it goes in and out of your nose. It's great because you carry your nose everywhere, <laughs> and you're breathing all the time. So wherever you are, right here, right now, you can practice it. All you have to do is, when you inhale, you notice how it feels at the tip of your nose when the air goes through your nostrils, and when you exhale, you notice how it feels. What that does is it takes your attention away from anything else you're thinking about, worries and cares or whatever, and just focuses on one point. And at that point of focus, you know, and there are many, many books are written nowadays about this, you know, like about staying in the here and now. That's where God is for me. The higher power is right here in the here and now, right around all of us. But my brain is in the future, in the past, you know, thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner after I leave here. So my brain is always somewhere else. But if I bring my attention right back to that breathing at the end of my nose, 
then that's where the connection is. And God is not speaking to me directly. God is not saying, you should do such and such and so and so. The reason why they call it insight meditation is because, and it's a very, very long, historic, you know, like uh, 3,000-year-old Taharavadan Buddhist method of meditating, is is that uh, you get the insights afterwards. You don't get them while you're focusing because you're focusing on the air as it goes in and out of your nose. And then your uh, the, the red light turns green and you start driving again and answers to questions that you didn't know the answer to just start to come to you. But it is a practice and it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do for a sustained period. You could do it for a minute or, or a fraction of a second or something like that, but you get better and better at it. And, and the beauty of it, like I say, is you can do it anywhere you are, standing in a supermarket line. You can do it while you're waiting for a red light. And you just, just keep doing it and doing it, and you get better and better. That's the way I do it. And, uh, but there's so many different ways to connect with the higher power. And uh, so that's just my, my way. Thanks. Any other questions? Thanks. Yeah. Frank, when you, when you have a bad day, and you, you know, you're really having a terrible day, what do you use to get back on the track? It's the steps, you know, it's the steps. Oh, I wanted to mention, uh, oh, uh, I'll talk about that later. Uh, yeah, yeah, when I see things are going wrong, that's like the step 10, basically. Because step 10 says, uh, we continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Well, uh, I'm wrong anytime I see my anger level getting higher. When I was sitting in that chair starting to feel nervous about this talk, I'm wrong. You know, my brain has to be open to that. I call it the observer mind. It's another sort of Buddhist technique. It's where you uh, assign one part of your brain to watch your movements and your thoughts all the time or as much as you can. So every time you find yourself getting egotistical, every time you find yourself getting hungry, every time you find yourself getting agitated or feeling low, you're wrong. Step 10. But I just have to recognize that in time because it'll go on. You know, I'll wake up in the morning, I'll feel bad about myself, I'll start to go off on different people, and then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, oops, I've been wacky all day long, you know, so it's too bad I didn't work the step 10 uh, as I was going throughout the day. Because if we work continually taking our inventory, anytime I go off off the beam, off the sort of like the flight line, uh, well, then i got to say, hey, I'm off the beam here. And then I work step 11. And I calm, you know, uh, stages in the big book, pages 86 through 88. We... Uh, calm when agitated, we paused when agitated, you know, what can we do next, how can we uh, mollify what's going on. It's the steps. The answer is in the steps. Was there a hand back there? Any other questions? Yes. What do you do um, to work on your willingness when you feel not willing? You know, I think that people are addicted to being unwilling. I work with a lot of people. Uh, oh, the question is, uh, what, what do you do when you feel unwilling? I think that uh, unwillingness is like a, a disease in itself. Because I work with a lot of people. I, I was working for a while with the guys in another program. 
that he was sober for five years and he's drinking himself to death now and he's doing it on a bench a block and a half away from where I live. He drinks white port wine all day long on a bench in the Palisades a block and a half from where I live. And whenever I stop and talk with him, I ask him how he's doing and he says, fine. I'm doing fine. Nothing is wrong. Everything is great. And I say, would you like to come back to the meetings again where we miss you? No. They're not for me. And it's a sort of like a basic unwilling. I don't, I don't know whether it's I'm giving up. I don't know whether I'm ready to die is what it is. What's underneath that unwillingness? But whenever I become unwilling to do anything, I really have to take a look at what's underneath it. Is it just because I'm a fatalistic person? Is it just because, you know, like uh, I don't feel like I deserve to be alive? Because that's what unwillingness is. It's a form of denial. And unwillingness is like where... Uh, Yes, it's true. The consequences are horrible. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be overeating. I shouldn't be starving myself. I shouldn't be, you know, binging and purging. Like, uh, I shouldn't be doing that. But I'm doing it, and and I guess I can live with that. That's that's sort of like the thoughts that go along when I think about unwillingness. So, in a sense, it's almost like willingness is a grace. For those of us who are actually willing to work the steps, go to the meetings, and, and, and maintain some sort of abstinence, that's a miracle, I think. You know, as a kid, I was always unwilling. Unwilling to do anything that was really good for myself. It was like mainly like extreme self-destruction. Does that make sense? Fine. All right, well, I want to thank everybody for your attention, and uh, God bless you all. Thank you.